Welcome to Outside the Tank, the first podcast in the world that interviews the entrepreneurs featured on Shark Tank. We get the inside scoop on how they got there, what lessons they learned, their biggest regrets, what didn't air on TV, what has happened to them since, and so much more. Prepare to be informed, inspired, and entertained. Welcome to an all-new episode of Outside the Tank. Welcome to an all-new episode of Outside the Tank. I'm Tom. I'm Joe. And we're talking about Jeff Cohen. Now, did you know there was more than one Jeff Cohen on season one of Shark Tank? You are not going to tell this story, are you? I wasn't going to. <laughs> Should I? Yeah, I think it's humorous. We need to take people behind the curtain of Outside the Tank. It's not going to be very impressive. <laughs> no. So, we knew Jeff prior to... <laughs> it makes the story even dumber. Yeah. It makes us look even dumber. Well, they look alike. Okay, so <laughs> we had met Jeff prior... And we said, you know, hey, we actually didn't even know he was on Shark Tank. And he's like, it's funny you have that podcast because I was on Shark Tank. Jeff Cohen, season one. Great, Jeff. We'd love to interview you for our podcast. Yeah. He said, I'd be honored to. It would be great. <laughs> so the day before, Joe and I are going to record the interview with Jeff. We sit down. I go on Google, Jeff Cohen, season one, Shark Tank. I get the episode, I get the company name, great. We watch it, we take our notes, we get organized. In fact, I have it right here. Voyage Air Guitars, season <laughs> one, episode three. He shows up with his son, Josh. Yeah. So the following day, Joe and I show up for our interview with Jeff Cohen. We start talking to Jeff, blah, blah, blah. How are you doing? Okay, Jeff, we're gonna hit record. Great, let's get started. We hit record. What does Tom say? Tom says, we got Jeff Cohen here, season one, episode three, Voyage Air Guitar. <laughs> and Jeff looks at us, he goes, different no. Jeff Cohen. I had a granola company. <laughs> Not the right Jeff Cohen. So he was kind enough to, we hit. We obviously hit stop on the recording. He was kind <laughs> enough to watch his episode with us. And he's like, I hadn't seen it forever. That was kind of fun. <laughs> then we had our interview with him. And and I want to just say... Clay, they kind of look alike, by the they, way. They kind of look alike. And, you know, a few years go by. You, you could age someone backwards or forwards. But I just want to say, executive producer of Shark Tank, Clay Newbill, if you're watching, please don't put two guys with the same name in the same season. It confuses the heck out of us. So For those of that us that again. have podcasts where we interview them. <laughs> yes, it does. All right. So... We're with the real Jeff Cohen. Yes. But we didn't. now we need to have the other Jeff Cohen on <laughs> we have, so we, we can tell him his yeah. story. Because I'm very curious about that as well. But Jeff, our Jeff, season one, episode five, uh, September 6th, 2009. So this is a long time ago. Uh, the company is Granola Gourmet. Jeff is a diabetic, been a diabetic for yes. 15 years at the time of airing, and uh, he created a healthy gourmet product. He went into Shark Tank asking 175,000 for 25%. Uh, at the time, he was in Whole Foods yep. doing about eight to 10,000 a month of sales, and he had about 90% of the Southern California stores, yeah. your old stomping grounds. That's right. Yeah, he comes from the uh, the Southern California area, and it's it's interesting. The the uh, idea for the product just came from him saying, I, you know, I'd like some yummy stuff that I can eat. 
Great ideas come That's from what he that. said. I want some yummy stuff I can eat. No. He said I want some stuff I can eat, okay. but I threw in the, the word yummy okay. just to kind of spice up the podcast. Okay. I do that a lot. We Yeah, we <laughs> embellish to make it more entertaining. So the Sharks. The Sharks did not love the idea. Uh, this was very, of course, very early on in the involvement of the way the Sharks invested, what they invested in. But they did, didn't really have a lot of... Uh, food investment experience. Uh, Robert um, thought he should be uh, not focused on Whole Foods. Uh, Damon didn't like the taste of the product. Uh, Mr. Wonderful thought his bankruptcy that he talks about was an issue. Uh, Barb thought it would take lots and lots and lots of money, uh, more than he was asking for, to uh, scale the product. So she was out. And uh, Kevin just thought, Kevin Harrington thought it was a quote-unquote me too business. So he walked away without a deal. So Jeff, granola Jeff. Yes. Not air guitar Jeff. Right, the right Jeff. All right, well, let's get into our interview. We had a lot of fun. And uh, afterwards, we'll share our key takeaways uh, that we learned from this talented entrepreneur. So enjoy our interview with Jeff. We are here with Jeff Cohen of Granola Gourmet, aired back on Shark Tank in 2009, many, many years ago. My, has the, how the world has changed since then. Uh, Jeff, welcomed outside the tank. Hey, thanks very much, guys. It's great to be on with you. All right. Well, let's start at the beginning. Uh, you know, you talked about some of this during the show, diabetic for 15 years, Uh how did you invent this concept, this idea? And I'll remind people, and, and Jeff, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, 12 years ago, there weren't a million health bars and some of the different things of diabetic-friendly, gluten-free. Many of these things either were in their infancy or didn't exist. So paint a little bit of a landscape as to where the world was in terms of these products back in 2009 and where you came up with the idea and how you rolled it out. Sure. Happy to do that. So, you know, I say on the show um, that uh, my now former wife, um, she was a really big baker and, you know, as a diabetic um, eating her baking was great. Uh, the only problem was it caused blood sugar spikes. And if you're diabetic, that's something you want to look out for. Um, my endocrinologist, who's also a, a diabetic, um, he and I talked about these bars every quarter when I'd see him. And, you know, I was making them for my family. And it really started with my sons and, and my ex-wife, like everybody got together. We made the bars together. Um, a close friend of mine came over one day and, and uh, said, hey, can I take some to work? Before we knew it, we were selling the energy bars to 20 TV shows and movies at the Warner Brothers um, lot. And, um, you know, that really gave the, the product, you know, kind of a, a kick in the ass to, to get it started. And it came at a time when um, I had shut down my software development um, business and we had 50 people and letting that go was extremely painful. That was in the two, 2007, 2008 period when all of our Fortune 500 and Global 2000 accounts had um, basically said, hey, there's a financial crisis and we're putting your services on hold. And that happened with every single client we had 
almost exactly at the same time. And so um, moving from that into anything was a big deal. You know, one of the things that happens when you go through a tough time like that is sometimes people get depressed. And believe me, I was there. I didn't even recognize it. And today, our world has a much different view of mental health than we did even 10 years ago. But, you know, I really, I wound up pushing my whole family away. Um, I would sit in front of the uh, sci-fi channel, you know, half a day or more every day, just trying to escape. And so when my friend got us into Warner Brothers with these bars and people started telling me they liked them, it was enormous. Like it gave me something I could be hopeful about again. Yeah. And, you know, in the book I'll be publishing in, in the first quarter of this year, next year, you know, I talk about the granola bar that saved my life. <laughs> this was it. How did you end up getting onto Shark Tank? Because again, this was the first season. So this, I'm sure there wasn't a big application process, long lines, everything like there is now. Uh, how did you hear about the show? How did you contact the show or how did they reach out to you? You know, I have to really credit that to my sister, Nancy. Um, Nancy was in real estate when the real estate crash hit. <laughs> and then looking for something to do, she said, Jeff, let's get into Whole Foods. And she really pressed forward in that and is very well connected and pays a lot of attention to what's going on in the world and found out about this new show and said to me, hey, Jeff, I can get us an audition. Do you want that? And I said, sure. And it was an open call, much like what they've done since. And she said, okay, Jeff, so listen, we're going to be in downtown LA at five in the morning on Sunday. And we were, and we were second in line for the call. It was crazy. Tell us what happened immediately following the pitch. So you go on, you do your pitch, uh, Season one maybe had a little bit different of a look and feel and tone to it. So they were they were tough on you. Uh, you don't really see much of that anymore. But following being on Shark Tank, uh, how much of an effect did it have on sales? What happened, you know, immediately following airing for you personally and for the business? Well, so first off, it was, um, it was really great to have had that experience, right? Um, and while I was on the show as it aired, and your viewers, if they go back and watch the episode, they'll get how I received, and by the way, no one had my email address, but I got 3,000 emails in, within the first hour after the show started airing on the East Coast. So I was kind of overwhelmed and individuals stood up and said, Jeff, we want to invest in you. We'll, you know, put our life savings on the line. We believe in your product. And I was floored to get that kind of a response. And what happened before the show aired was we actually had the experience of a large uh, chain. The, the um, Safeway organization owns Vons and pavilions in Southern California and their management found our product in Whole Foods and they ordered product from us even before the show aired because 
it was filmed in July and aired in September. Um, and so by the time the show aired, we had product in a hundred stores in, more in Southern California. And then the show aired and Safeway came back to us and they said, hey, we, we would like to have you do a different version of your product for us. And we want to roll it out in 3000 stores. And uh, on the show, you heard Robert um, Berkovic say he wouldn't invest because I wasn't focused on building Whole Foods. I think something that was missing at the time, probably because at that point, I don't think they'd really invested in food businesses that could go national, um, was that as a food business, what you need is national distribution. We were delivering all the product to, to all the stores in, in Whole Foods in Southern California. But when Vons and Safeway came on, now they had us get involved with two of the large distributors where now our factory would produce pallets of product. They'd go on a truck and to a distribution center. That was a game changer for us. And, um, and we didn't have that at the time. So our sales increased substantially. The show um, certainly contributed to it. We wound up getting into additional stores our online sales got a boost. It was fun. When you say you were delivering it, I was delivering, delivering it. it. Okay. And this is, I was in my RAV4. I would go with one of my sons or my sister would go in her car and we would have cases of product and we would go to that rack that you saw. Yeah, that's okay. That's the way I'm picturing it. Like where the semi truck drops uh, stuff off, but you're pulling up back and in a RAV4. Yes. Okay. <laughs> right. Like that car always had 40 cases of product in it. And we would go to Warner Brothers and service the shows uh, during the week. And, you know, then, you know, we would go whenever we went to the Whole Food stores every week or every other week and do the same thing there. And yeah, it was, um, it was, I'm telling it, it was a really great way to bond with my family. My kids also did. Uh, events with me for the American Diabetes Association every year, uh, farmers markets we would go to as a family. We just, it was a real family business. It was fun. It was, um, it was a bonding experience for our family. And and Jeff, I uh, assume that you had a full package manufacturer and co-packer. You weren't really involved in that part of the process hands-on? Not at that point. <laughs> when we found that show... <laughs> We were making the bars in a, um, uh, a, a, a production facility where production foods were made. And I would have a team of people come in. I mean, what most people don't get is what you saw on the show was exactly how we started to deliver to Warner Brothers. Right. I'd be up till two or three in the morning with my my wife. You know, I, I got actually people calling me up saying, hey, Jeff. How are you cutting the bars? What is that tool, right? And they don't realize that's actually the tool that made it possible for us to have a consistent shape and size of the bar <laughs> before we started doing productions. And um, no, the way it went was we made it in our house, you know, for the first few months. Then we found a uh, catering company that let us use their facility nights and weekends. Then we went to a larger facility and I had 10 people that would come in 
between their staff and the staff we had to make and store the bars there. And then we, um, we went to a really large facility that you can see in the um, success story they aired in, in season two, um, where we, we could produce 50 to 100 to 200,000 bars a day. Like the machines were football field size machines, enormous. So what happens? You obviously grow up as a company, sales are going, distribution's going, you're not making it in your kitchen anymore. Then what happens in the in the business? Well, you know, it wasn't a very high profit business. You know, the food business, there are a lot of ways they get you. Um, one of the ways we got stuck was um, in our agreement with Safeway, uh, we had... Um, a quarterly promotion that they asked us to commit to, and we committed to it. And it took our profit down to pennies per bar. But we figured, you know, they'll be ordering regularly so we can weather that. You know, the distribution, excuse me, the distribution companies are really smart. They know how to take advantage of a sale. And so we sold product every quarter to the distribution companies, not every month, because they would stock up. And I couldn't make a living. So, yeah, tell me a little bit more about that. So just based on the margins and the way the cash flowed through, just it sounds like a really, really tough industry. Um, I mean, what, what else can you share that you learned or what else about, you know, again, that food sector that might be interesting for our listeners? You know, my sister was masterful at developing relationships with brokers. Those are the folks that would go out and be your sales team, right? And we got into some other large uh, markets because of that. And also because we had distribution nationally with Safeway. Like now it was possible for the product to be mass distributed. But with the margins that we had, there just wasn't enough volume. And keep in mind, it was very competitive. Um, there's really no way you can patent a product like that. I mean, your ingredients are on the label. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, um, but whenever we came out with something interesting and different, you know, Cliff Bar or someone else would copy it. You know, we had the spiced orange cranberry flavor before anyone else. We had the chocolate espresso flavor before anyone else. We had a brownie bar and, uh, you know, like, and then, you know, six months later, suddenly Cliff Bar had all of these flavors. <laughs> and listen, it's a food product. There's nothing unique about it. What makes you unique in that business is your ability to distribute. Now, one of the other things that we put a lot of time and money into was, um, was the glycemic index testing that we did. And what we found was our product had the lowest index numbers in the market. But by the time we found that out and could actually put that into promotional activities, I really needed to make an income. And so I went back to work in uh, tech at IBM again. 
and had my sister running the business for the next couple of years. And we just, you know, we realized without having the kind of investment that was needed, without um, making the big splash we really needed to make, all that we had was um, a great product that a limited market could enjoy and get the benefit of. And, you know, it was difficult to discontinue the company, but in 2014, that's exactly what we did. Is there anything that you would have done differently or was it just a really, really tough industry that is capital intensive and, you know, you feel like, hey, we gave it our best effort, but very, very tough industry and market conditions? Well, there are a couple of things that occurred that, um, that impacted our company. Uh, one was uh, somewhere about the time we were designing the new product for Safeway, um, Whole Foods pulled our product because they said we didn't comply with F- FDA guidelines around health claims. Again, we said our product was good energy bars for athletes, diabetics, and you. The minute you use the word diabetic, it was a problem. Now, a company our size was actually exempt from that rule. However, a company the size of Whole Foods, um, you know, when there's a concern, you know, they, they felt like they had to act. Um, And so that impacted us. Had we been educated in that, we might've done the slogan a little different. Um, And um, I will say this, thanks to our team, we had our product back on the shelves of 150 stores in three weeks. Like it was, like everyone just pulled together, right? So um, that was one thing that that had a financial impact and was difficult. Um, The other thing is, is I probably would have gone into the negotiations with Safeway a little different on pricing. Um, How so? Just well, your ground a little bit more protected the margin? Yeah, exactly. I would have said, you know, I I would have said, you know, so if we're only going to sell quarterly, then when you put our product on sale, this is the price, not that. You would have and, that safeguard and that requirement. Yeah, I would have definitely done done so. I would have I would have been better off remaining a regional product that we delivered to in Southern California uh, with our racks than to go national because when we went national, they removed the racks, and those racks were an enormous win for us. Just keep in mind, you know, when a product's on a shelf, um, products don't fly off the shelf. They just don't, right? Our average store, you know, would sell maybe, you know, a few hundred dollars worth of product a month when it was on a shelf. Yep. When we had that rack in place, our smallest volume at a store was $500 a month. But we had a store that was about 2,000 square feet, a whole food store. They had our rack. 
like just imagine a 2000 square foot store, like people live in homes a lot bigger than that. They had our rack. We were selling $3,000 a month in that store. Right. So, you know, certainly placement was an issue. What I did find was every, you know, the, the rack was a great tool for us. And every so often it would be in the back because someone from Whole Foods corporate would come in and say, move that. That's an eyesore. But it sold a ton of like, I can't imagine it was the rack was two square feet, one and a half square feet of floor space. So I just wonder like if they measure sales per square foot. Do you think it would have been easier to promote the product now with Instagram, social media in general? Cause I mean, I see a campaign around, you know, if you're going down this niche for diabetic, um, you know, consumers, for you to be able to do a lot of social media marketing, a lot of Instagram, you know, testimonials from, from people, you didn't really have those tools at your disposal at the time, right? You know, it was early on in the Facebook world. Um, and I don't think we capitalized on Facebook in a way that was effective. Would have been interesting had we, had we really given that the kind of attention uh, that we could have. Um, Instagram, I don't think was really a factor then. Um, Google was, but again, we were bootstrapped. Yeah. You know, without cash, there's only so much you can do. When you uh, we, go ahead, sorry. What we did do is we developed an, a national relationship with the American Diabetes Association. Um, and that helped, but really the, listen, it was a, it was a great company. Like I said, it is the granola bar that saved my life. I was, I, I would say looking back now, definitely clinically depressed, not seeking help, you know, uh, uh, and I want to ask you about that because depression is talked about now. It wasn't talked about even 10 years ago for some strange reason, but people talk about depression uh, and there are, you know, there's more conversation, there's more resources around it. I wonder what you learned, some of the tools, just real briefly uh, before we get to some other very positive stuff, but I wonder if there's tools that you learned that you still use today that you could share with others that might go into a, a, a place like that. Get some help. Um, don't resist when someone says, hey, you know, it's not normal to sit on the couch for six hours a day watching sci-fi. Yeah. Um, don't um, uh, notice when you're a hermit. Just notice it. Like if, if I had just noticed what was happening was that my wife would leave the house in the morning and come back late at night to be away from me because I worked from home and my kids would get home from school and go to their room and play video games instead of being with me. Like I just wasn't available. And um, there were 
my conversations where people said to me, Jeff, come on, what's going on? Right. Um, it was a, it was a crappy time in my life. I know that I was reeling because when my business, my software company failed, um, there were a lot of people that were hurt and I felt responsible, but I didn't feel like I had the ability and wherewithal to do something about it. And I also, um, you know, I helped as many of those people as I could land new jobs, get better pay, whatever the case was. And you know, I was still there needing to shut the company down and I needed to do something. So I, it just, you know, it was a two year period of my life just was not fun. How you know, important is when you do all the right things and you have a business failure and I've had a business failure. I'm, I'm, I'm sure Tom has had minor failures in his short career, but we've all had this stuff happen. How important is forgiving yourself? That's a really great question, Joe. Um, it's, it's easy to carry stuff your whole life, okay? Um, and I, I don't want to say that I've actually forgiven myself because that wouldn't actually do justice to the people that were hurt. Because um, I still carry that. But I think it's being straight about what's occurred and being able to vulnerably share it with people and own it. And I, I took a program called the Team Management Leadership Program, which was a two-year program about communication. And what I learned in that program was, if I just communicate and I share and I'm open, then I can take ownership of what I did well, but also what didn't work. And it's not about, so I don't, I don't harbor the same feeling of guilt that I did back then. Um, I still feel, I still feel it. Like there were things I did that were really shitty. I know that. And I, I'm really sorry to everybody that had that experience of me because it's not who I am today. And I apologize. Um, but it's also a journey that I've been on and everybody goes through them. So it's a matter of not ignoring it. It's a matter of being real about it and not trying to, um, uh, not, not, not trying to pretend that it never happened. <laughs> you know, that's a great way to put it. And in the book that I've written, that's coming out in a few months, I have a chapter called The Trappings of Failure. <laughs> great, great chapter, Dave. So that's a great segue. Uh, Tom and I have had a chance to talk to you offline. You're a really, really uh, good person, talented person, talented writer, uh, content creator. Tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing, the new book as, as, we, as we wrap up, because uh, I'm, I'm sure there's, there's people listening to this, watching this that will want to grab- well, What happened to him, right? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I told you, I took a program in 2013 to 2015 called the Team Management Leadership Program. Through that program, I learned 
a couple of really important things. Number one, I figured out I was actually a lousy boss. I was great visionary, a great strategist, and a lousy boss. Gotcha. And um, I, I instantly in that program got 50 CEOs and business owners together in groups and identified like in the areas of our business, what could we do better to actually have things work? And identified um, alignment. So the CEO or business owners, business objectives and plan were not aligned in the company uh, and communicated effectively. And also, we came to a realization over time that trust usually does not exist in a company and employees are always looking for evidence of the breakdown in trust. Right. So over the course of uh, three years, I developed a program called the Next Level 90 Business Accelerator Program. Um, I took it um, out and started doing it with um, a number of businesses. Uh, one of the organizations I work with, the Valley Economic Alliance, we had uh, Union Bank and Comerica Bank fi- uh, fund that program for about 30 minority women in business. Um, and I've, I've actually worked with over 300 business owners in the last seven, eight years in that program. And what we actually identified in it was um, how not just that these problems exist, but how to communicate what the cadence of meetings is, what to say, how to manage promises and not people. And in doing all of that, we found a very effective way to have business owners and CEOs create an environment where their team is all in the same bus, on the same freeway, going the same place at the same time. And not just that they are, because there are a lot of programs that tell you to do that. My program actually shares how. It gives you the templates and it gives you the documentation you need and gives you the tracking mechanisms to use, enables you to create your business objectives and your visions and have your managers create theirs so that they align with yours. And that's what the book is that I'm I'm, going to be delivering shortly. That's fantastic. It sounds like uh, versus just a lot of great theory that we've all read and, and consumed before, this really gives you the how-to. It really allows you to become a practitioner, put this stuff into practice. Yes, it does. And the word that most people embody with that notion is the word accountable. And what's missing for most people is that Accountability has a very negative connotation. You see it in politics and in law enforcement all the time. When you have it in a company, it gets the same airplay. People do not want to be held accountable. There's only one person in a company that's actually accountable. And it's their job to create the environment where other people can deliver. And that process is what I call count onable. 
It's the process of lifting, shifting, and empowering your team. And that's what the name of the book is. Count Honorable. Lift, shift, and empower your team. That's fantastic. And uh, Count Honorable, how did you arrive at that? Was that, you know, did you wake up in the middle of the night? <laughs> what a great word. What a great word you have invented. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I, I now own the URL. So, um, so I actually own a word on the internet. Amazing, right? Um, so the way, the genesis of that term is, um, you know, in in most organizations, you you go to who you can count on, right? And I would always be asking my people, my CEOs I worked with, so who can you count on that will get this done? And when they didn't get it done and we were tracking every week, right? So we knew, oh, they've not done that for two weeks. Okay, great. Then I started saying to them, I'm just curious, is this someone that you cannot count on for? And one day I said to a client, I said, look, we need to know who's count onable and who's not count onable. That's what we need to know. And so I started using that term and it really resonated with people. And in my view, it's, it's the word accountability turned on its side. And the side that it's turned on is where the CEO is accountable for creating an environment where people don't get penalized for saying, you cannot count on me for X. When that environment exists, the most magical thing happens. Your management team will stop wasting one to two hours a week hearing reasons why things don't get done. Just imagine you have six executives that report to you and they're all getting a story about why things are not getting done or the things that are not getting done are just falling off the radar. And no one even knows if they're a priority to the vision the CEO has. Yeah, this is this is really good stuff. The book is the book is probably going to be out imminently. <laughs> it's and, so uh, I'm I'm, in a de I'm declaring that I'll have the book out on March first. Um, and if anybody is interested in getting on the list and knowing that. It's coming. Uh, feel free to go to the C-Level Roundtable uh, website and send me a note and I'll make sure you get on the list. Um, you know, one of the things that I learned in the team management leadership program is when you do things serially, that would be one by one, then eventually someday things get done. But when you do them in parallel and have a team that you've employed to do it, you can accomplish a lot more, a lot faster. And so right now, um, just so people get that, listen to this in the future, it's December 7th. Um, we currently have the final, the editing happening for the book, the book cover design being finalized. Um, we're building our business strategy for rolling out the program so other coaches can deliver it and we can get it into the hands of, uh, of more companies. We are also in the process of engaging a marketing team 
to build a new website presence. So you may go to countonable.com um, and see something there at some point in a few months. But right now, go to C-Level Roundtable. That's the letter C, the word level, the word roundtable.com, where you can uh, reach out to me and I'll get you on the list so you are informed when the book is available. Good. Well, Jeff, this has been a pleasure. Um, great stuff. Uh, obviously, a, a great success story. Um, and, you know, we all have we all have curveballs thrown at us in life, but uh, we're all survivors. You're a great survivor. You're a great entrepreneur. You're helping a lot of people through your work and can't wait, wait till the new book is out. I'm going to be first in line. Uh, count Audible. So, uh, Jeff, thank you very much for being on Outside the Tank. We appreciate you, buddy. Hey, thank you, guys. It's a pleasure to be here, and I really appreciate you. Thanks, Jeff. You're welcome, Tom. We're back. Yes. Your favorite yeah. part of the show. Post-game. I love post-game. Little what do we learn? Little nuggets that you take away from people. A couple things I want to mention about Jeff. Uh, obviously, big heart, great guy. He persevered. <laughs> we love and, perseverance. You know, he's had some failures that he, he talks about. He really, uh, and I also like that he embraces the failures. He's not afraid to be real and talk about what doesn't work. Um, sweeping stuff under the rug doesn't cut it as an entrepreneur. You have to face failures. Maybe you don't label them that. Maybe you label them something like a, a, a falling forward <laughs> or a, a lesson, a learning experience. But he persevered. He continued on with his career and, and other pursuits and reinvented himself. And I like to see that. I like to see someone who has um, failed to reach their objectives in one business get into another and move forward. The other thing I want to mention is equally as important and made an impression on me. He suffered from some mild depression and he became very aware of it and he worked his way through it. And I think that in every entrepreneur's career, Tom, you're, you're going to have some ups and downs. Every business, it, 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 when you're an entrepreneur, it feels like this roller coaster ride. And we always talk about you can't get too up, you can't get too down, you have to run in the middle if you're gonna run for the long term. You have to really work on your attitude. We, we use this word attitude a lot and, and it's really important. You have the, the toughest six inches you will ever have to travel is the six inches between your two ears. And so what he did is he became very aware of how he was feeling and he got some help. And I think that's a, a very important thing to think about in getting help when you need it, whether that's a, a therapist or a great friend or a peer group, just get some help. Few others, uh, on a lighter note, uh, the key to the you know food industry, the, the industry that uh, Jeff was in with this product is the ability to distribute. And so, you know, everyone wants, so oh, we need the perfect product and oh, it tastes the best and it's the best one out there. Nothing matters unless you get it out there. So, you know, if you're only in a handful of stores, you really can't scale it. So, you know, as fun it is to pick packaging and taste different or test different flavors and do all the fun stuff, the reality is, is you've got to figure out a way to get this out across the masses, otherwise it can't scale. Or, you know, putting it on shelves is not the right distribution and you can sell it on your website, but then how are you gonna drive traffic to your website so it's not just sitting out there? So distribution. Um, and then also if you're going retail, really for a lot of different products, product placement. And so he talked about, hey, if we had a rack, we sold. If we didn't have a rack, we didn't sell. It's the same thing, whether it's digital or it's brick and mortar in a store, you know, 
are is your product in front of place uh, in front of people? Yeah, and are you paying attention to those nuances? And the last one's really important. And I think we've all been guilty of this, but protecting your margin, right? So either protect your margin or you say no. But you can't do stuff for free. You can't say, hey, we're going to make it up in volume. We're making next to nothing now. Oh, but at volume, we'll make it up. <laughs> or we'll hope and pray that we get our costs down. Or we believe that we can renegotiate a better deal later. You got to stick to your margins. And, um, you know, he did not. And I and I think that that's just an important lesson that, you know, it, it's okay to say no. Because yeah. saying yes really actually is a step back as yep. opposed to a step forward. And it's no different uh, consulting, coaching, um, you know, any type of product, right? Anything. If you don't protect your margin, then you're working for free or selling your product for free or even taking a loss if you have any setback. And when you're in the early stages of your business, it's very easy to say yes to things you shouldn't say yes to. You have to watch that. You have to constantly guard that. It's a fine line. It's very <laughs> difficult because, you know, we want to bring money in the door. We want to get orders. And sometimes you do need those reps and you do need that do need that experience but it is you know you got that, really got to focus you, that's when you've got to think long term you've yeah. got to go out and and stay stay very true to your long term objectives great interview with jeff a lot of fun yeah i like the guy really good guy and i hopefully the other jeff cohen's nice too we yeah. talk to him <laughs> we have to look him up <laughs> all right well you know where to find us every week outside the tank uh, hope you enjoyed this and don't forget our book is in the uh, podcast feed, Entrepreneurial Landmines. Listen to it. Let us know what you think. Um, OutsideTheTank.com, if you ever want to jump on a 20-minute strategy call with Joe and I and share your idea or your challenges in your business. And uh, we love talking to entrepreneurs. We love helping them get organized. Yeah, and part of what we do is we do organize them into small groups, uh, peer groups of like-minded, like-sized businesses that help each other, mastermind groups, peer advisory groups. That's part of what we do inside of our Growth 10 business. We'll see you next week on an all new episode of Outside the Tank.